2 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And... I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. This is the word of the Lord. As we begin, the question is this, do you realize how special you are. Do you realize how special you are? It's a question on one level for every single person in the world. Um, God says you're unique and valuable and special. And if that sounds like the kind of thing that you hear in a primary school assembly or a Disney film, it just kind of sounds so familiar and like it's not really saying anything, that's only because Christianity has so shaped the way that our culture thinks It's the Bible's innovation to say that every single individual human being is made with special individual dignity, innately. That your worth is not tied to what you contribute to society or or what qualifications you've got or anything like that. The Bible says that every human being is made in the image of God and therefore special. Whoever you are this morning, Christian or not, God says you're, you're special. But Layered on top of that, God says to his people, to Christians, that even amongst the human race in general, even amongst my image bearers across the world, there is is something particular about you. It asks, do you know how special you are? Not innately, um, not not as though there's, there's something extra about Christians that God saw and liked and thought, well, I'll have them on my team. But actually what God does is he takes very ordinary people, in many cases sort of below average ordinary, very ordinary people and does something special in them. When people trust God and receive his love and his kindness, some big things change about us. And these two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to church in Corinth in the first century, to a large extent are trying to get the Corinthian Christians to understand What are these big things that have changed about you? And what do they mean for you now? And that, I think, is what is happening in the passage that Rich has just read for us. Um, Three questions to ask of this passage. I had at one stage three very zippy sort of headings, and then I decided they didn't make sense. So three questions um, for this passage. What do we need to know? Why do we need to know it? How do we need to respond? Okay, three questions for the passage. First one, what do we need to know about ourselves according to this passage. You can see verse 14 
onwards, that Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? That is, have righteousness and wickedness ever kind of sat down together and talked things over and issued a joint statement saying that actually there's quite a lot more that unites them than divides them? No. What fellowship can light have with darkness? I was on a camping holiday recently and um, happened for one reason or another to wake up quite early in the morning and stay awake um, from that point on. And I was awake early enough to see, see sort of light begin to come <laughs> into the day. And, and, and gradually it's getting lighter and lighter. And the thing about that is that where light increases, darkness decreases. One, one chases the other one away. You can't turn them both up at the same time. They never join forces. He keeps going. Verse 15. What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? That's another name for the devil. Can you combine the differences of Christ and Belial to create something even more beautiful? No, of course not. Well, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And in each of those comparisons, in those questions, Christians are associated with the first, the first of them. So what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Righteousness, that is what Christians are associated with. That means that we are declared and counted as having been faithful to God. God says of you, if you're a Christian, this one is, is right before me. Not because of how they'd lived, but because Jesus died to take away their sin and his righteousness counts as theirs. Then in the second question, light. That is God's people. Paul said a couple of chapters ago in this letter that to be a Christian is to have had God shine his light into our hearts. Just like he did at creation when he said, let there be light, he's done in us so that we are new creations. Third question, Christ and Belial. Christ were associated. Obviously, we are not Christ. He is a person and he's a different person to us. But Christians are associated with Christ, identified with him so closely that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, for example, Paul can talk about how we participate in Christ. We are Christ's body. And then temple. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And this is the one that Paul really wants to go after. He says in verse 16, we are the temple of the living God. What does he mean when he says something like that? The temple was the Old Testament's answer to one of the great questions, the, gr the great problems that the human race faces. How can sinful, broken, little, wicked people live alongside a God of blazing holiness and purity like we've just sung about? God, he is, God is utterly special. He's, he's pure and he's different to the rest of us and he's greater than the rest of us to such an extent and, and the difference between us and him is so huge that really we ought just to be destroyed on contact with him. The Bible says that he dwells in unapproachable light, that he's a consuming fire. I was trying to think of um, an illustration for like the, the, the extent of the burning purity of God and his holiness and I was thinking well 
someone trying to land on the surface of the sun. And, or, or, and there's, there's no acceptable parallel, really. Because the, the, there doesn't exist in our experience so great a gulf in holiness as there is between human beings and God. That's the problem that the temple is there to address. But then God, in the Old Testament, gave the provision of the temple, a building in which he symbolically lived. And that was a way of him being amongst his people without destroying them by his holiness. And the temple itself was full of, just to make that point, full of no entry signs, saying, you, you know, you can't, you can't come further than this because you'd be getting too close and God's too holy. And it was full of sacrifices being offered. That, was, that is, other things being destroyed on our behalf so that we needn't be as we come into contact with God. But it was symbolically where the holy God was to be found in the world so that there was no more sacred place on the face of the earth than the temple. But now, because of what Jesus has done, because God himself has come into the world to offer the ultimate and final sacrifice of himself on the cross, those who trust in him can approach him in all his holiness. In fact, it's not just that Christians are allowed to go into the temple now. Verse 16, we are the temple. We are the temple of the living God. Can you think of a way of expressing the privilege of that? Not only that we can come into God's presence. How can that just be the first half of a sentence, by the way? We can come into God's presence, but not only can we come into God's presence, we carry God's presence with us in the world. He, he is with us. So that there is no more sacred space on the face of the earth now than you as a Christian. And yet there's more. And there's the presence of God with us, and we have relationship with him. Do you see from halfway through verse 16, there's a quote that's indented. I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's a phrase that gets repeated again and again and again, actually, across the whole of the Bible. So back in Exodus, second book of the Bible, um, just before God rescues his people from Egypt, um, he says, I will be their God and they my people. And then right at the other end of the Bible, um, Revelation chapter 21, last but one chapter of the whole Bible, um, God says, looking forward to the rest of eternity, they will be, the Apostle John says, looking forward to the rest of eternity, they will be God's people and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's almost like a wedding vow, isn't it? I will be yours. You will be mine. And God repeats it again and again and again and again and again throughout history. And then verse 18 possibly turns it up even louder. Verse 18, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Do you know how special you are? Adopted by God as his son or daughter. Think of a little boy we know who was adopted. All of a sudden, through nothing that he's done, he is welcomed in and loved by a family as their own. If you ask his parents, he is now different to all the other kids in the world. He is unbelievably special. 
On one level, he's the same kid as he always was. Same hair color, same eye color, same DNA. He's the same kid. But on one level, he's a totally different kid. Something immeasurably significant has happened to him. Here is what we need to know about ourselves from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Christians are the temple and the children of God. We've been so set apart by God that we are... We are different to the rest of the world. I wonder if that's how you think of being a Christian. Is that how you speak about being a Christian? I think I often use slightly watered-down language when I think about what it means to be a Christian. I've, I've invited Jesus into my life. I've believed in him. Even I've become a Christian. It's all true and it's all brilliant. But the Bible uses language to suggest that something really, really radical has happened when you become a Christian. It speaks of being born again, being adopted, as we've seen, being transferred uh, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and here of becoming the temple of the living God. Something really, really, really special has happened to Christians. That's what we need to know. Second question. Why do we need to know it? And there could be quite a lot of reasons why you need to know something like that. Perhaps you're here and you have a pretty low view of yourself. You feel like, well, nobody's especially interested in me. Why would they be? I'm not especially interesting. I don't really fit in anywhere. Nobody really notices me. And yet here's the Bible saying, you're a Christian. You are, you are the temple of the living God. You're his son, his daughter. The Corinthians, the, these Christians in the church in Corinth in the first century, they needed to know it because their lives weren't really matching up with that reality. That was their problem. Or at least their lives were only fitfully matching up with that reality. They kind of wanted to be just like everybody else around them, just like everybody else in Corinth. And Paul is saying to them, you're not like everybody else. You're the temple of the living God. Being like everybody else be like the, the boy I was telling you about who was adopted, saying, well, it's very nice being adopted, but I don't necessarily want to have to live with my new parents or hang out with them or like eat dinner at the same time as them. But they're not like everybody else. And Paul has reminded them of that kind of thing a lot throughout the different letters he's written to them. You know we've got one and two Corinthians uh, in our Bible to the same church. And um, don't worry about turning to it, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, He's, he's been addressing the issue of sexual sin, which is a particular temptation for them. And the Corinthians were thinking, well, God just wouldn't be that bothered with what we do with our bodies. They're, like, they're just bodies, just sex. But Paul said to them, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Don't, don't you realize who you are? In fact, in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, some, of them, some of the Christians in the church, they were taking one another to court over various disputes that they were having. And he said to them, do you not know, same question again, do you not know that you will judge angels? Do you realize, in other words, that Jesus has associated himself so closely with you that you will one day share in him, sorry, share with him in judging the world? But the latest problem in Corinth is that a version of Christianity has arisen which is saying something like, well, like you can be a Christian without being weird about it. Do you know that? 
it's actually, it's actually fine to be a Christian and look basically the same as everybody else in most regards. In fact, there's a version of Christianity where you can relax about all the things that Paul goes on and on and on about. You can relax about what you do with your body. Relax about, in Corinth's case, relax about going along to pagan temples and joining in the services going on there. Relax about having to use your gifts to serve other people. Just just express yourself. You can relax about all of that, and you can do some really impressive Christian religious bits, sort of soaring rhetoric and clever philosophy and spiritual experiences. You can combine a very, very impressive Christian show with much less fretting about what you do in your actual behavior, your actual life. Less of this weird, difficult Paul stuff. I think that was what's happening in Corinth. And the thing is, that kind of Christianity is alive and well today. We'll put on a Christian show, and we'll do it extremely well. Um, But we won't worry about the difficult bits. The bits where Christians need to be different to everybody else. It's alive and well in the Church of England, where Christian spectacle is often done beautifully and coupled with a refusal to live out the Bible's teaching when it gets countercultural. In fact, sometimes we measure by the world's standards as if God should catch up with the culture in areas like what we do with our bodies. And this version of Christianity exists in my heart as well. I can put on a good Christian show. I like to think so. Anyway, you be the judges of that. But I can, I can put on a good, good Christian show. I can say all the right things. But where it's really difficult, where the Bible says things that the world doesn't, or that it would just be so much more convenient for me if it weren't saying that, I'd much rather just fit in with what everybody else is doing. It exists in my heart. I wonder if it exists in your heart as well. Why am I so keen just to do what everybody else is doing. I think it's because I don't want to be the odd one out. I don't want to be weird. I want to belong. And it's as though the Apostle Paul is saying to me in verse 16 and 18, at the top of his voice, you already belong. You already belong. I'm your God. You're my people. I've made you my own. What do we need to know? God has made us special and different. Why do we need to know it? Because there is always a temptation just to be like everybody else. Thirdly and finally, how do we respond? How do we need to respond? Look down at the passage, you'll see that there are three instructions, really. So there's one in verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. There's one or sort of two in verse uh, 17. Come out from them, be separate, touch no unclean thing. And then there's one in chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. And each of those three, I think, amounts to more or less the same thing, which is not to compromise with sin in any area. That, I think, is what perfecting holiness means. Not be totally perfect, but in, in every area, pursue um, holiness. Strive for it in every area. Don't have areas of your life where you're unwilling to live out 
the life and the, the differentness that God has given you. So I wonder in what areas of your life you are trying or tempted to try to have a little bit of light and a little bit of darkness. Where, where you're tempted to take the temple of God um, into sin. Areas where you know you're just, you're just compromised a little bit. There's a famous eulogy given at a funeral I heard about once. I have no idea whose funeral it was, but the eulogy said that this particular person's life bore inspection at every point. That was, that was the quote that stuck in my mind. Their life bore inspection at every point. I wonder at which points does your life not really bear inspection at the moment? Where would you really like it not to be inspected? It's a funny thing, sort of working for a church and being in full-time ministry because you, you chat to people and they find out you're a sort of vicar and um, then every time, you know, every time they swear or, you know, make some sort of sexually graphic remark or something, they go, ooh, ooh, sorry, sorry, sorry about that. And it's a bit silly, isn't it? And, like, being a sort of vicar is neither here nor there with this kind of thing. But at least those people are realizing that there is something incompatible, something kind of incongruous about holiness and sin. And you think about the areas of ongoing sin in your life and Paul's question is do you realize who you are do you know how special you are temple of the living God what what could be holier and sin is is incompatible with that I wonder where you need to live that out a couple of thoughts on what this passage isn't saying and doesn't mean that Christians should have nothing to do with non-Christians um, that would be silly and I think counterproductive in lots of regards. And actually, in 1 Corinthians, Paul has clarified that already. He said, if that's what we were saying, you would have to just leave the world. Um, so it's not, have nothing, it's not calling for cults, it's not calling for monasteries, it's calling for fighting sin. Very often, um, this passage is used to say that Christians shouldn't marry non-Christians. And... Um, I realize in talking about that, that's sensitive ground and, and, and will be doubtless um, for some. I don't think this passage is about marriage. There's nothing in the, in the context of it that would suggest Paul is talking about marriage or has that particularly in mind. But with that said, I do think that this passage radically undermines the attitudes that would motivate a Christian to marry someone who didn't know the Lord. Undermines thinking a bit like this. Well, we're not so different, are we? We're, we're both nice people. He's not anti-Christianity. Why, why should a little thing like my faith get in the way? Can you see that Paul is saying that in very, very significant ways, you are different. One is the temple of the living God, and one is living for things that are not God, which is the, what the Bible means by idolatry. So, we could go on, but while, while this passage isn't about marriage, I think it does mean that for a Christian to marry somebody who isn't a Christian would be a bad idea. And it may be that you know, you'd appreciate the chance to talk to somebody after the service a little bit more about that. There's no, there's no, there's no judgment from Paul here. There's, there's a desire to help and to guide and to, and to paths that lead to freedom. 
By the way, Paul says back in 1 Corinthians again that if you are already married to someone who's not a Christian, um, you should stay married to them, um, you should love them, and you should seek to show Jesus to them. Maybe that whole area is, is not the area of struggle for you, but please think about what it is. And then remember who you are. How special. How different. And then come to the Lord for help. Just as we close, um, in the context of this passage, I think there's kind of one further way that we need to respond, which is not to get our standards for the Christian life from the world. Remember, that's what the false teachers in Corinth were doing. They were saying, you can do this Christian life in a way that just kind of fits in seamlessly with with the rest of the world and, and add one or two religious accoutrements to it. Um, And Paul is saying, no, 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 real Christianity is going to look like Jesus. That is, it's going to look weak and strange and kind of confronting and out of step and possibly utterly compelling, therefore. Not that he's saying, you know, we've got to be deliberately weird. Find more ways to be weird. That's not what he's saying. In in God's kindness to the whole world, the that non-Christians of the world are right and wise about a lot of things. And there's wisdom for us to be taken from the world. As I've thought about in my job, how to support students well, I've got a lot of help from secular commentators and sociologists and people watchers and stuff. So really, there's lots of wisdom to be taken from the world. But we don't measure success or failure, still less right or wrong, by the world's standards, but by God's by the ones that he gives us in his words. If you're here this morning and um, you're not a Christian, you're very, very welcome. And I'm conscious that lots of this feels sort of a bit in-house, doesn't it? Um, Christians, we must, we must be different. To it. But I, I wonder if you can see that, um, or at least I think that if you're not a Christian, you should want Christians to be very different from you. Because if Christians are just the same as you, then the only good that Christianity could ever do for you is bless what you already think. Just sort of give it a religious pat on the head. can't actually help you. But if Christians are very different, if, if their lives look very different to yours, then it might be that they have found something that you haven't yet found. In which case, there might, there might be hope for you if there's something in what they think they found. There might be hope for you. And in fact, Christians are only Christians because they have received an invitation from Jesus Christ to come and be changed into something very special. And uh, they're not there perfectly yet. Uh, The work's begun in them. One day it's going to be finished. But that same invitation, come to Jesus Christ, be changed, be made into something very different and very special, that invitation is offered to you today as well. It's not an in-house thing. It's an anybody can get in on this thing. And that invitation comes to you this morning. Christian, understand who you are. Do you know how special you are? We are the temple of the living God. Nothing could be more holy and special than that. Think like it this week. It's going to look like for me to live like the temple of the living God. Paul says... Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates 
perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Well, in reverence for God, why don't I lead us in prayer? Please help. Father, it blows us away to think of all that you've done for us. And we confess that we don't often see it and we don't, we don't always think like it. And sometimes it's easy to think that being a Christian is a very small thing and we're sorry for that. And we recognize again in, in what you say to us here that it's a massive thing. And we pray that you'd help each of us as we go away to, to put our finger on areas in which our lives are not consistent with the reality of what you've done for us and who you've made us. We pray in recognition of all of those privileges. You'd help us to perfect holiness, to bring every area of our lives to you. And that more and more you'd be helping us to live like the people that you've made us into. In Jesus' name, amen.